0: We have hard objective evidence of the harm that comes to human beings when they don't have enough animal source food in their diet. Mm -hmm. And we can see this globally in statistics like childhood stunting globally and um, various things like that. And and yet we have people advocating for less Mm -hmm. uh, because some people actually believe that there's such a thing objectively as too much animal source food from a health perspective only are you aware of any evidence of from a nutrition and a human health perspective of harm coming to people from too much animal source food in their diet no nice (laughs) welcome to the herd and thanks for listening we're happy to help you have informed conversations with your health care providers, but please do not treat anything we say in this or any of our episodes as medical advice, even when the guests are physicians. They're not your physician. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow. That will feed the algorithm and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Herdmates Sodcast. And I am very pleased and honored to be joined today by Dr. Mike Eads. Um, I told him before, and I tell everyone that's looking for a book that uh, Protein Power is what I started on, and I was starting on it in 2007. So it had had a pretty good run by that time. Um, and it's basically what I've been doing ever since. So uh, with that, thank you, Mike, for joining us. Hey,
1: glad to be here.
0: And here right now, for the time being, is in California. Right. And you're Montes about to- California. You've lived there for a few years, but you're relocating in that process. Uh, yeah, I've lived here half time for a while. Okay. And so, well,
1: yeah, we've moved to, uh, we used to live up on Lake Tahoe, and then we moved from there to Dallas, or instead of back and forth between Tahoe and here, we're back and forth between Dallas and here.
0: Okay. Well, thanks for the time and and dealing with uh, the lack of all the equipment (laughs) you're used to having. So you're one of these people that started out first in engineering. And then you decided that you were going to switch to medicine. I'm fascinated by when engineers get involved in medicine. (laughs) what is it that, that kind of this different perspective on things? Do you, do you think that's true? Or am I just dealing with a, you know, select number of people that maybe it's confirmation bias? In this case?
1: <laughs> well, you know, that's always, uh, a chance, but, but it's, uh, I think engineering is a good background for medicine. Actually. I had a lot of, uh, I had an easy time of it compared to some of my classmates who had majored in other things uh, when we got into the real technical aspects of physiology. Uh, so I think having an engineering degree was, was a bonus. And what most people don't realize is you can get into medical school with any kind of a degree as long as you have certain prerequisite cra- uh, classes, uh, one of them being organic chemistry and uh and you have to have a certain number of life science classes, but the one that they really look at is organic chemistry. And I hadn't had that in engineering school, so I had to take that on my own, which that was even an interesting story because, uh, oh, man, the, a long and circuitous road because it, I was working as a, uh, I was finishing up my engineering degree and I was working as a, uh a scuba instructor and kind of a commercial/slash salvage diver, and uh, I. Um, and, and during this whole thing, uh, in order to get certified as a scuba instructor, I had to go to this this big long school thing that that uh, was put on by the county of Los Angeles. And because that was sort of the primo certification, and since I was living in Southern California at the time, I wanted to get that so. When I did that, they went through a lot of diving medicine, and I became really intrigued with medicine in general. And then I had a, uh, had a diving student of mine who was a, a medical student, and he and I became friends, and then I started learning about the whole process of medical school, which I had previously known absolutely zero about, other than you had to go to school more, and I was sick up to here with school at that point. And I thought, you know, you heard all these things about, well, you have to go to school for 12 years to be a doctor. And then I found out from him, no, you just have to go to school for four years. And only two of them are really school. The other two are clinical. And then you go on to your residency and all that. And I thought, well, God, two more years, I could probably do that. And so I, I just really got interested in the whole thing and then realized that I didn't have these prerequisites. and by this time, I was already working as an engineer. And I um, (laughs) decided that I wanted to go back to school. And I was working in this big job project down in the southern part, down by San Diego. And I had to drive down there every day to oversee this giant pipeline project. And I thought, you know, kind of on the way to University of California at San Diego. So maybe I can talk these guys into letting me take a few courses there. And they wouldn't do it at the engineering firm that I worked for. So just about the time that this was all taking place, um, uh, I saw an ad in the paper um, that the city of Carlsbad, California, which was where I was living at the time, a little coastal community down there between uh, San Clemente and San Diego needed firemen. And so I thought, Well, you know, I've heard that firemen don't work very much, so maybe I could work school around that. So I applied for it and went out and took this huge physical test uh, that was really wild, all the stuff you had to do. And then, and they had only three spots that they were offering. There were 500 people that showed up for this test. And then there was a written test. And so anyway, after all the dust settled, I ended up getting one of the spots. So I quit my engineering job and became a fireman because I only had to work every other day. And then I had a lot of time off besides that because they've got this weird schedule. And so anyway, I talked to the professors at UCSD and they said, yeah, you know, if you can make most of the classes and keep up, you're fine. So that's what I did. And I ended up going through and taking organic chemistry and the other life science courses that I needed like that. And then I started saying, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to do this? Because by this time I was even more involved because I had a lot of time in scuba diving and I wanted to get a dive boat. And so I remember sitting on the beach one day after a dive down in Carlsbad. And, and I had this uh, kind of Jethro Bodine moment. You remember Jethro from the Beverly Hillbillies? And he was going through this uh, angst over whether he wanted to be a, uh, a neurosurgeon or a soda jerk. And so <laughs> I kind of went through that same thing saying, do I want to go to medical school or I just want to blow it off and get a dive boat? And so I decided, okay, well, who knows if I can even get into medical school. So let me give that a try. And if I don't get in, that'll solve my problem. So anyway, I ended up getting in and there it was, the rest is history.
0: But you, you're you from Arkansas, is that correct?
1: No, I'm actually oh. from, from the Ozarks in southwestern Missouri. That's where uh-huh. I grew up. Okay. And I, I got to add, through all of this, all this was going on after the my fire department days were over. Uh, I decided to go back into engineering because although I just wasn't crazy about being a fireman, uh, to tell you the truth. And because the fires were kind of cool to go do that. But the uh, the rest of it was awful. And uh, and it just, you know, you work kind of every other day. And then you had a lot of stretches of three days and five days off. But to me, because they were 24 hour days, it just seemed like I was working all the time. And, I, you know, I spent one day dreading it and one day doing it and one day recovering from it. And then, you know, it started all over again. And so I decided to, to move on from there after about, I don't know, a year or so, I guess. And I got another engineering job and then an engineering job came up in Alabama and I actually went to Alabama but that was a short-term contract job. And the only reason I went there is because my grandparents lived in Alabama. I hadn't seen them in a while and I'd kind of grown up with them. So I went back there to spend some time with them. And then I got an engineering job in Arkansas. And so I took that. And then while I was there, I said, okay, it's now or never. And so I applied at the university of Arkansas and
0: there you go. Excellent. Um, So now you're practicing medicine. What's the time frame for that?
1: I started in practice in 1981. And actually, you know, it's um, really nothing I ever do follows a standard path. (laughs) And uh, my wife and I started, uh, I was working working. emergency rooms a lot, and she was still on her postgraduate training, and so we decided to, because at the time I realized that 90% of what you see in an emergency room doesn't belong there, it's not really emergencies, and so we started one of the first, uh, what are now called urgent care centers in the country, and we built up a, a chain of those in Little Rock, Arkansas. And so that's where we did the majority of our practice. And during that, so we, we did that for about, I don't know, 22, 23 years. And while we were doing that, um, um, I gained a bunch of weight myself and got really interested in weight loss and then switched over to, I, I carved out my own little weight loss practice within this sort of, uh, urgent care empire. And so that's, that's when I got really interested in all that. And, and it just went from there. And then we sold that chain of clinics and opened up our own little clinic that was specifically a clinic taking care of, uh, overweight people, people with diabetes, people, lipid problems, uh, any of what we call metabolic diseases. And we, we took care of those there. And then we, um, Moved that clinic to Boulder, Colorado, and practiced there for a few years, hmm. doing the same so, thing. And during the course of this, uh, you know, we got onto this uh, whole low carb diet idea. Uh, I did because I lost so much weight with it, and uh, had all kinds of uh, health improvements. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with me, but uh, just felt a lot better and and had slept better and hmm. you know had all the changes that everybody experiences when they go on low-carb diets. And so I ended up, uh, uh you know, fooling with it to try to refine it, to get to, to uh, something that I, you know, I put patients on. And, and then I just wrote about sort of all those experiences in protein power. And that's where mm-hmm. protein power came from.
0: So uh, having read, Gary Taubes' books, and and getting a bit of the history of the chain of investigation, application, researchers who have been involved in um, adiposity and chronic disease, and the role that carbohydrate reduction might play in improving those conditions. W- w- your initial introduction to this, was that based on you reading any of that or just sort of stumbling upon things on your own or, or because you've clearly become aware of them since, yeah. but
1: <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I mean, you know, this was way, way, way before Taubes was of on course. the scene. And uh, I think we started putting people on low carb diets in 1984 so it's been what, 35 mm-hmm. years now almost, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the uh, and what prompted it was, as I say, I had gained some weight, and I got one of these um, fasting programs. I kind of got interested in, and when I got all the literature from it, it uh, it you know talked about the benefits. That came from it being because carbohydrates were restricted, and I thought, man, I thought that was a bad deal because I'd read Atkins way back in the day, um, and the reason I read Atkins is because uh, that was back about the time I was contemplating medical school, and and that was all the rage, and I thought, you know, if I uh, I better read this because when I go in for my interview, somebody's going to ask me about it, and I want to be au courant. <laughs> as they say on on whatever the topic of the day is. And at that time, Atkins was the topic of the day. And so I remembered that book and I remembered seeing some of the stuff in this fasting deal. And up until then, I'd been kind of like everybody else in medicine. I'd you know, put people on 12 or 1500 calorie a day diets. And so I, I read this material from this fasting company and, and uh, I said, man, that sounds similar to Atkins, a lot of this stuff. And so I... It prompted me for the first time ever to start pulling medical papers and looking at them. And then the thing that that um, sort of didn't jive with everything I was reading is that they would put people on this fasting program and all the things that made it work were because of the carbohydrate restriction. And then when people lost the weight that they needed to lose, then they would immediately put them on a low-fat, high-carb diet. And I thought, you know, this doesn't make sense at all. And so I modified the whole thing myself to where my patients went on a low carb food diet, and um, but anyway, that's how the whole thing got started. And then I got really interested in it because the results happened so quickly, and that's what people, especially people who go on a lot of diets, don't really understand is just how quickly changes take place when you cut carbohydrates. And I mean, it's it's stunning.
0: So and, mm, sorry. Well, it's
1: just stunning and people can't believe it. And at the time that all this was happening was, I mean, right at the apex, at the peak of the low-fat furor that was going on.
0: So I, I, there was two terms I wanted you to define for us. One is um, uh, diabesity and the <laughs> other is lipophobia. So now you're in Arkansas, but this is Arkansas circa 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, Arkansas looks a little different today. Um, in fact, I've I've heard the southeast basically being described as you know the diabetes belt. Mm-hmm. So let's let's start with that, and then we'll get to lipophobia.
1: Well, I mean, diabetes is not a term that I came up with, but what it basically means is. Uh, at least, uh, actually, I've never seen an actual definition of it, but, uh, and I've actually used it myself, but I would assume that the definition uh, revolves around insulin resistance because the sort of the, the common soil for insulin resistance, I mean, for uh, diabetes and obesity, uh, type 2 diabetes specifically, is insulin resistance. And so, typically, people who are obese and people with type two diabetes have insulin resistance. They always do in type two diabetes. And so, that's uh, when you have that combination, you've kind of got diabetes. But you can have uh, obesity without diabetes. Uh, You sort of have to be uh, genetically predisposed to to become diabetic because a lot of overweight people who are insulin resistant to a certain degree still maintain enough insulin sensitivity that they don't have diabetes. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. And, and so we've been thinking we being people informed by public messaging that, um, obesity, overweight, obesity is a driver of chronic disease. And what is perhaps a more informed perspective is that obesity is another manifestation of metabolic illness, not a cause of it. Is that a fair um, statement? Yep.
1: Uh, I think so. I mean, I used to show all my patients this diagram of a big iceberg and and the part you couldn't see under the water was insulin resistance, and the part you, or hyperinsulinemia, and the part that you saw the you know the peak sticking up were obesity, diabetes, uh, hypertriglyceridemia, and all the all the panoply of uh, of symptoms of the metabolic syndrome.
0: Okay. So now lipophobia, uh, <laughs> again, you may not have coined the phrase, although I think I heard it first from you, but, um, fear of fat. What, what, what's fear? that about?
1: Well, uh, I mean, back in the, in the eighties, everybody was scared to death of fat, particularly saturated fat, but some people only got the message that fat was bad. So they feared all kinds of fat and, um, um and I, I guess it's uh, it's more part of this whole uh, lipid hypothesis of heart disease and the lipid hypothesis basically says that if you eat saturated fat, you're going to run your cholesterol up. Cholesterol is a risk factor for heart disease. So elevated cholesterol increases the risk for heart disease. Therefore, eating saturated fat increases the risk for heart disease. And that's more or less the lipid hypothesis in a nutshell. And so people, and since heart disease is the biggest killer of Americans, people wanted to do whatever they could to avoid it. And so they, uh, the message was don't eat saturated fat, but the and, message a lot of people got was just don't eat fat period.
0: And, and of course, most of the saturated fat in certainly Americans diets is going to end up coming from animal source foods. Correct. And so then it becomes a simple step from don't eat anim- don't eat uh, saturated fat to limit your consumption of animal source food. Right. And, uh, and to eggs, too, because, uh,
1: you know, the first part of the cholesterol message is that you've got to cut your cholesterol intake, too. And that's kind of all part of the whole thing. Even though Keys, who is the progenitor of this whole mess, uh, himself found out that cutting dietary cholesterol didn't matter, but uh, still people had that in the back of their mind. And, you know, you'd say, well, I'm going to have a three egg almond. Oh my God, you're going to die of a heart attack tomorrow. I can't believe you're eating all that cholesterol. And mm-hmm. they, they just obviously don't understand the physiology of it all. Mm-hmm. But that's what lipophobes are. I mean, lipophobes, there are two types of lipophobes. My one type are the lay people who are just afraid of fat in general and saturated fat specifically. And then the medical lipophobes are those who should know better, but they feel like that the lipid hypothesis is correct and that uh, uh, cholesterol drives heart disease. Um, And therefore you should do whatever you have to do to lower your cholesterol levels.
0: Okay. So you've, um, your blog, which I I don't mean to, don't mean to um you know bump any bruises here um i understand but um you had a post that went something like the three patients that you learned the most from or something like or taught mm-hmm. me the most mm-hmm. and so these are patients that you encountered fairly early in mm-hmm. this application and so why don't you just kind of share that story because I think it's really important for people to understand what could happen when we put human beings on a species appropriate diet.
1: Uh, yeah I think it was actually four patients but these were people who came in early on because uh, you know I, it's true confession time. I've got to admit that I at the time had bought into all this uh lipophobic uh, what i consider now as heresy but at the time of, of this you know this sort of phobia, phobia yeah. about fat but my phobia about fat was about actual cholesterol levels this cholesterol hysteria and i too thought that you ought to drive cholesterol down and what I had discovered putting people on low-carb diets is that their cholesterol did go down for the most part. Their LDL generally went down, their HDL went up, their triglycerides dropped like a rock. Uh, and I thought that was a, a good thing, which it probably is. I mean, not that it lowers it, but I thought, you know, this is great. Instead of trying to lower it by cutting the fats, you can lower it a lot better on a low-carb diet. Now my whole thinking on it is it doesn't really matter all that much. But at the time, I was focused on lowering people's cholesterol with a low carb diet. And so I had um, these patients come in and the the first one was a a lady uh, that was a a mother of a friend of mine. And she had gone to the doctor and had been put on um, some kind of cholesterol lowering drug. I don't remember what it was now. And she said that, when they checked her, her cholesterol was about seven hundred and uh, which I still think may have been a lab error, but that her total cholesterol was seven hundred, and that her triglycerides were twelve or thirteen hundred and so I came in and talked to her, and i said look let's uh, you know let's give this a try it it's really worked for a lot of people, and if it's going to work, it's going to work quickly, and we'll see what the changes are and it's it's not going to be harmful in the short term and so put her on the program and brought her back in three weeks and, and rechecked her blood. And I mean, everything had normalized. It it stunned her and it stunned me. I mean, I figured it would come down incrementally, but it just normalized almost all at once. And I thought, wow, this is something else. And then I had a, uh, the wife of a famous politician come in and same thing. Her cholesterol was elevated. Her triglycerides were, you know, Fourteen, fifteen hundred. I put her on the same program, the same thing in three weeks, and it all normalized. Mm-hmm. And then I had a, a young woman come in that my wife actually sent me who had come to see her for uh, kind of uh, just sort of weird abdominal pains. And so she drew, my wife drew labs on her, and her triglycerides were about 2,500, which at the time were the highest I'd ever seen. And um, so she sent her to me to evaluate, and I brought her in, and, and I uh, put her on a, almost a carnivore diet, just meat and salad, and then stressed about it because uh, you know just, I'd never seen triglycerides this high. I uh, actually gave her my beeper number, uh, and so she um, came back in three weeks, and it had normalized, but was, I, I could not believe it. And then the fourth one who came in and these people all came in in the space of about two or three months. And I mean, these kind of patients are rare. I mean, you see them and I've seen others like this, but never just jam packed this close together. And it was early on when I was really feeling my way through and a little bit worried. And this guy who came in was a a friend of mine who was a, an advertising executive and he came in to get a physical. And so he uh, just, I gave him his physical, and we were chit-chatting, and he said, uh, you know, I'm, and he was kind of a thin guy, and he said, you know, I've got this little pot belly, and, uh, you know, I'd like to be able to get rid of this, and, you know, what would you recommend, and so i put him on a low-carb diet, I said, here, do this, and this, and this, and send him on his way, and it was on a, a Friday, I think, that he came in, and so on Monday, I get his labs back, and his labs, the same thing, triglycerides, out the roof, elevated cholesterol, low HDL, and, and and he really worried me because he was about 55, which is, you know, a middle-aged male, and, and I was really concerned about him. I was concerned about the others, but females, premenopausal females, uh, don't really get heart disease very often, and uh, the mother of my friend i was concerned about her but uh there were some other things going on there so i wasn't as concerned about her but this guy was really concerned about because i'd sent him off on this diet and so i called his office monday morning and they said oh no he's on vacation he went down to the to the caribbean he left on saturday and i thought oh, geez well tell him to call me as soon as he gets back and i i felt better because i figured okay nobody goes on vacation and sticks on a diet i'm sure he's waiting until he gets back to start it and when he gets back, he calls me and says, what's up? He says, by the way, your diet works great. I've lost four pounds or something while I was on vacation. And I said, are you sticking with it on vacation? And he said, yeah. And I told him this whole thing. I said, look, why don't you come in just for both our sakes and let's uh let's test and check some more labs. And so he came in and checked. And this was 11 days after his initial lab. And everything had normalized. And so that gave me the confidence to... Uh, you know, to move on with this, even though I was still operating under the the wrongful assumption that all of that made it, that you know, that cholesterol was a a driving force for anything. And I think it's more a marker of a lot of things than I did then. But uh, that gave me the confidence to go on with this whole thing. And then I just saw that repeated again and again and again and again. And I hear all this talk on people about how if you put people on, on low carb high saturated fat diets that their ldl goes up and i just never really saw that i might saw it in a few patients and i saw a lot of patients but almost everybody had an improvement they may not have gone down into what the you know the range of the day was which has been going down incrementally ever since but it always went down and every now and then one would go up and i would uh, sit down and talk with them and say you know i really don't think this is a problem because I think because your triglycerides have gone down so much, I think you've converted from a type B to a type A. And at the time, the NMR tests were coming out. And I said, you know, if you want to get one of those, they're kind of expensive. And I don't know if your insurance will pay for it, where you can actually do a particle size analysis. And I said, we can check that. And most of them did. And a, couple, you know, a handful said they did. And whenever I checked them, it did. It, it was, uh, had gone to a type A level which I don't know what it was before because I didn't check before. I just checked their cholesterol levels. Um, But they were all type A then, and so I didn't really worry about it. And it wasn't until after that that I've come to the conclusion that I have now that it's just all kind of bullshit. (laughs) this whole cholesterol thing, and, it you know, shouldn't be worried about that what you really need to look at are the triglycerides. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and Dave Feldman's done all this work. That your cholesterol zips all over the place all the time. And it's just insane to me that people come into the doctor and get one cholesterol test and go on a, uh, a statin drug. That's a hugely expensive b ineffective. I and mean, it's effective in lowering your cholesterol, but it's not effective in prolonging your life. And and is um, has a lot of really bad side effects in a lot of people, and I mean if they're going to do it, you know they ought to check multiple cholesterol levels, but they'll just do it based on one elevated cholesterol level. I mean it's unreal.
0: Well, I I get to stand in front of audiences, and they're not the continuing medical education kind, so. Um, and I'll talk to these agricultural audiences, and somebody invariably comes up and says, well, my doctor says I have high cholesterol. And I say, what fraction, what numbers? And all they know is they have high cholesterol. Mm -hmm. Um, So clearly people need to learn more about what that means in order to have an informed conversation with their healthcare Mm -hmm. um, uh, team and you know we're not giving medical advice we're not practicing medic medicine here but we're sharing information so people can have those informed conversations Mm -hmm. Uh, and And certainly need to have them yeah and certainly you've spent years giving information to people so this isn't new Um, but just the introduction to it again I think there are people who haven't heard this yet, um, which perhaps isn't too surprising. You were talking about your own feelings of maybe a little apprehension, given the time that you were starting on this with these four patients. I mean, we've right. had massive um, messaging at us, the dietary Guidelines for the first time came out in 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, Senate Committee 77. We had all kinds of environmental messaging. We had all kinds of uh, concern going back several years earlier when we have a president who has a heart attack in office, and and now you have various medical groups promoting <laughs> their idea of what's causing heart attacks and. There's a whole story there, and urge people to read that story elsewhere. But it's not—it's not unreasonable that a physician would be concerned, given operating in the '80s right. uh, with all this. I mean, when did the Time Magazine cover come out with the frowny face, two eggs, and bacon? I mean, uh, that was mid '80s, wasn't yeah,
1: it? Yeah, eighty-eight, eighty-nine, something like that. I think. Yeah. Uh, and it—it it, it, what it really. Uh, it wasn't even as bad then as it is now, in a way, because at that time, I think statins were just coming on the market. A lot of physicians were a little bit iffy about them. The whole statin thing was, was uh, interesting, too, because when they first hit the market, um, you know, they advertised them kind of to patients like they do in these drug ads today. And uh, people would get all worked up about their cholesterol, and their doctors would say, don't worry about it. I mean, your cholesterol is fine. Um, and, and the, you know, the cholesterol used to be that the average cholesterol level was around, I can't remember the exact number, but close to 300. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then people started on this, well, it average isn't good. That's not a good cholesterol level. That's just the average because so many people have it high. And so that number that was appropriate kept coming down and down and down over time, but it, it, at the time back then, what I was worried about was telling people to eat saturated fat. Now the problem doctors have is these statins have just uh, made their way into the the medical armamentarium and everybody uses them. And I've had people come in. I've had people write me and say, my doctor says my total cholesterol is 210 and that's too high and I need to go on a statin. What should I do? And I have to go through the thing. I can't tell you what to do directly because I'm not your doctor, but, uh, you know, read about it, Uh, uh, but anyway, now all the doctors just routinely, mindlessly give statins, and since um, malpractice is generally considered what you do that goes against the community standard in in virtually every community, every doctor just about gives people statins, Mm -hmm. and so if you don't give somebody a statin, and that person has a heart attack, and People have heart attacks even on statins. They reduce the rate of them a little bit, but they still don't make you live any longer because you end up dying of something else. And who knows if that something else is promoted by the statins or not. But that's the big bugaboo about all the statin data is there's no real data that shows that they uh, confer any positive effect on overall mortality. They just switch what you're going to die from, from a heart attack to something else. But it doesn't completely get rid of heart attacks. It just reduces the incidence a little bit. And so people can still have a heart attack on statins and do all the time. Uh, But if you don't give somebody a statin and they have a heart attack and their family decides to sue you, then you've got all the physicians in town saying, oh, yeah, I would have given them a statin. um... And so everybody kind of, to to protect themselves, it's easy for me because I'm not in practice right now, so I can say all this stuff. But if I were out treating patients, it would be a real conundrum because I would be taking a major risk in doing that. And that's Mm -hmm. why I think doctors are so unwilling to, even though they may listen and they may understand, it's just not worth the risk to not give somebody a statin.
0: Um, I have a family member who, after hearing about this for a while decided that they wanted to stop taking the low-dose statin that they were on. And um when they went in for their annual review and said, I don't think I want to take this anymore, the physician's response was okay. Because <laughs> um, basically, you know, you if you see someone whose values indicate they should and you offer it, and they refuse. Everybody's covered, right?
1: Yeah, and you can you can make that note in the chart: patient, you know, you know, prescribed X amount of whatever kind of statin, and and patient refused, and then you're covered. Yeah. But if you just tell people, no, I'm not going to, I don't want to put you on a statin, and then they have the big event, uh, mm-hmm. then you really incur some liability if the family chooses to go after you.
0: Okay, so um, along the line we've been told, uh, so one more thought on on that. It, it's the NNTT, no, NNT. Number needed o- to treat. Mm-hmm. But it's a website. Mm-hmm. Do you, re- you remember what that URL is?
1: Uh, I think it's nnt.com. If I remember, I don't know. It may be something else, but the, um, mm -hmm. well, no, it was, was, you know, the number needed to treat is a calculation on the number of people you need to treat to prevent an instance of the disease. And it's pretty high in statins. I don't remember what it is. I haven't looked at that in a long time, but it seems like it's up in the low hundreds.
0: Yeah. Or
1: high, you know, 80s or 90s. So you have to treat a lot of people to prevent one heart attack.
0: It, it it depends on how you want to slice it, like is this primary prevention or secondary prevention, mm-hmm. um, but um, a question that I would ask farmers is, would you buy a product that you have to put on 300 acres in order for you to see a benefit from one acre? Um <laughs> And I don't think many people are going to go for that. And that's pretty close, if I'm remembering correctly, to the secondary prevention. So maybe you could explain the difference between primary and secondary prevention in heart disease.
1: Well, primary prevention is if you have putative, what they call putative risk factors, which is a word that means we think they're risk factors, (laughs) Okay. Uh, we don't know that they're risk factors, but we think they're risk factors, putative risk factors. And one would be an elevated LDL level, which seems to be universally thought as a risk factor by doctors everywhere. Uh, I guess it's not universal since not, they all don't think that, but the great majority of doctors think that that's a risk factor. Uh, so that's a putative risk factor. So if you have putative risk factors for heart disease and you're trying to prevent heart disease, that's primary prevention you're pre- preventing the primary event. Secondary prevention is when you've already had a heart attack because the people who are most likely to have a heart attack are people who have already had one. And so on those people, you're trying to prevent the second the heart second. attack. So that's okay. secondary prevention.
0: So I got those backwards. So the 300 to one is, I think, more the primary. But mm-hmm. um, So thank you for that. Um, and again so now we're in the 80s you're learning you're gaining confidence um and in 96 is when protein power comes out is that right something Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. okay so you've you but you've already written some things but right you're you're now putting together protein power so let's uh one talk about the name and to um, let's talk a little bit about what somebody could adopt, you know, if, if they listen to this and say, well, you know, I heard this, you know, agronomist talking to some doctor and he said (laughs) something about if I ate eggs and bacon or um, bacon cheeseburgers with no buns and didn't have the French fries and a ribeye steak for dinner with a green leafy salad, that it would improve my uh, lipid profile. Um, what's <laughs> There might be more detail to offer them uh, before they get the copy of the book from Amazon or wherever they might be able to get it still. So how did Protein Power come into being as a name? Mm. Well, it... it. <laughs> It was uh,
1: provided by the publisher. Uh, we, A thing that people don't understand uh, who are in the publishing business is that uh, everything between the covers belongs to the author. And there's a real misconception about that. People tend to think, oh, just... Uh, you know, write a bunch of stuff down and send it off and they'll edit it and make it right. Well, what they don't understand is that the editors only make suggestions. Everything in there is yours. You decide whether to take those suggestions or not. And so when you send off a manuscript to be edited, they'll scribble things out and cross things out and then they send it back to you and you can read it and say, "Mm -mm, no, I don't want to do that okay i'll accept this suggestion and you go through because that's your part of the book that's you talking Mm -hmm. and they may not like the way you're saying it or they may not like what you're saying but it's it's that's your part of the book and you get to decide if you keep it or not now what they can decide is if you don't go along with what they say we're not going to publish the book but generally you you come to an agreement and usually the suggestions they make are not uh, contextual they just make it read better And it's amazing because you'll struggle over a paragraph sometimes as a writer and finally just out of desperation, say hell with it and put it in the book and send it on. And then when you get back your edited manuscript, you know, they've crossed out a couple of words here and moved this sentence down there and you read it and says, why didn't I think of that? But anyway, the, the middle part of the book is all the authors, but the cover is the publishing company because that's their advertising piece. And so they, You know, they take the pictures to put on there. They decide what to call it. They uh, decide what to write on it. They have their own in-house people that write all the cover material. And so they came up with the name Protein Power, and we hated it at the time. We had come up with about 40 suggestions because there had been all this back and forth with the book company. And Protein Power may have been one of those that we just to kind of fill out the sheet, put down. I can't even remember anymore. Or if they came up with it de novo. But anyway, that's what they wanted to call it. And so we had no choice but to go along with it. And so that's what it was and is. Yeah. So uh, that was actually a pretty catchy, alliterative title, but I kind of didn't like it at the time.
0: Yeah. So, but clearly emphasizing protein when in fact fat is a critical part as opposed to carbohydrate in the diet. It was not a time to be promoting fat in any way, right? Right, correct. Yeah. So yeah. I yeah, mean, they didn't want to call it fat power, that's for sure. <laughs> so we I mean we don't sit down and put a scoop of protein on our plate, right? We we put food no. on our plate and that food may be a good source of high quality protein, but it tends to also come with uh, uh, fats of varying kinds of, you know, saturated monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats, because all foods, real foods tend to come with a mixture of those fats. Mm -hmm. Um, So, Uh, What would be, so what would be the sort of starting recommendations for somebody? Let's say you've got somebody who's, you know, six foot and 240 pounds, man. Um, I mean, we're just going to make sure that people get sufficient protein. Don't worry about the fat and limit the carbohydrates. And if you're hungry eat.
1: Right. Uh, You know, you, uh, what you got to understand is there are three, what are called macronutrients, there's fat, protein, and carbohydrate. Those are the three things that provide calories in the diet. And you've got to have calories to provide energy. Uh, you know, just your energy for daily living. And those really can come from all three, but primarily they come from either carbohydrate or fat or a combination of the two in, in almost all cases. And protein is, is, um, sort of a a structural macronutrient. I mean, you know, enzymes in your body are are made of amino acids, which are proteins. Muscles are made of protein. Even bone is made of a lot of protein. I mean, everything is made of protein and that protein kind of wears out over the course of a day and it has to be replaced and you replace that with the dietary protein. So you've got to have enough dietary protein to, um, uh, you know, to support your protein mass. And so unless there's just nothing else to, to consume for, for calories uh, you don't generally consume protein as calories, you consume fat or carbohydrate. And the problem with uh, the way that the trend has been going since the mid seventies onward is that people feared fat. And so they wanted you to increase the carbohydrate in the diet, decrease the fat and so those things are generally the inverse of one another if you increase fat you can decrease carbohydrate if you increase carbohydrate you decrease fat to keep the calorie content what you need to maintain your weight and fat itself dietary fat doesn't have a lot of uh, uh, hormonal properties in other words it doesn't stimulate metabolic hormones particularly but carbohydrate really does and so when you eat carbohydrate it runs your insulin level up it knocks your glucagon level down it stimulates some other uh, uh, hormonal uh, secretions and it tends to make you store fat makes you store energy and if you eat enough of it you can develop problems with insulin resistance because of insulin receptor downregulation. a whole lot of things can go on if you overeat carbohydrates and so uh, And this is where the people who take care of diabetics get all wrapped around the axle because they said, well, we, because if you say to them, look, diabetes is a disease of too much sugar in the blood. So why are you feeding them more sugar? Then they counter with, well, diabetics are also more prone to heart disease. And so we can't give them all this fat. So we can't give them the fat. The only thing is left is carbohydrate because you can't really up the protein. And that's also an interesting thing because if you look at all the diets, I don't care if it's almost the Ornish diet or an Atkins diet or anything else, when you get down to the real nitty gritty of it, the protein's about the same. It doesn't fluctuate much. You know, Mm -hmm. it'll fluctuate from 11, 12, 13% to 15, 16, 17%. But it it's generally in that range and what fluctuates is the fat and the carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. And so, um, if you, if you restrict the carbohydrate, then you end up eating more fat to get your caloric needs, and, but you eliminate a lot of these hormonal issues. You find it easier to lose weight. You, you, know, you get rid of retained fluids, um, you know, all the things that happen to you on a low-carb diet. And so I've gotten so wound up on all this, I forgot what the original question was, but <laughs> that, that's kind of the basis for protein power.
0: Okay. So if people focus on a high-quality protein source, which is generally going to be some form of animal source food, fish, poultry, eggs, dairy, meat, um, and then add some non-starchy vegetable to the side and make sure that you eliminate the sugar sweetened beverages and the 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 bread the pasta um the 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 sweet potato the the um white potato then you're pretty much there right and may need to tweak it a little bit and it certainly isn't a hardship to eat that kind of food no it's not um, which increases the chance of somebody staying on, as well as the success. Right. But I think um, a point that we mentioned before we got on was um, that these metabolic improvements happen quickly, as you said, and and that weight loss, while significant, is a lagging sort of uh, improvement for many. I mean, they may lose, Uh, a lot of weight at the beginning, but it's, it's these metabolic changes. And in fact, we've now got studies showing metabolic improvements without weight loss.
1: Right. Right. And that can happen. But uh, if, if you've got excess fat stored, you can lose it relatively quickly on a low-carb diet. So I don't want to leave people the impression that they're not going to lose weight on it because they are, but it's just all these other changes happen so quickly mm-hmm. and the weight loss, you just got to go through the process of burning it off. Mm-hmm. And when you're on a, a low-carb diet, well, I mean, this is a sort of a controversial thing to say, but I completely believe that you, you sort of gin up your metabolic rate a bit for a whole host of fairly complex reasons, but you gin up your metabolic rate a little bit, so uh, you're going to lose more weight on a given number of calories than you would on a low-fat diet where you don't gin up your metabolism that much. And uh, um, and so you have what's uh, the so-called metabolic advantage on a low carb diet that you don't have on the other, but you still got to burn it off. Mm
0: -hmm. And if
1: you got a lot of weight to lose, it's going to take you a while to do it, but you'll feel better during the whole thing and you won't be hungry. And that's the problem in my view of low calorie diets because hunger is just this kind of built in extremely strong sort of atavistic um, urge that people have that you can only uh, ward off for so long. And then you're going to give into it because willpower is not reliable. Yeah, it's Uh, not reliable, especially over the long term. And and ultimately, you're going to break and go face down in a box of donuts. And if you're on a a low carb diet where you're not particularly concerned about the calorie. And the interesting thing is, if you're on a low carb diet, it, it sort of mitigates hunger and so if you count up everything you've eaten over the course of a day you find out that it's a lot fewer calories than you thought it was so you're on a, a sort of a low calorie diet without trying to be on a low calorie diet and while eating to satiation and if you do get hungry you can always go get something to eat and as long as it doesn't involve carbs you're fine and so it the the low carb diet in my view has just multiple advantages over any other kind of diet. And at the time that uh, we were writing protein power and even the book before that, Thin So Fast, there was this multitude of books out there on all these different facets of low fat dieting, you know, the multicolored diet, the this diet, the that diet. And they were all some version of the of the low fat diet. And now the since people have finally seen the light on low carb dieting and realized how well it worked for all kinds of things. Now all kinds of people are on a low carb diets. The same thing's happened. It's all fragmented. You've got the paleo diet and the keto diet and the plant-based keto diet and the, you know, the just the old standard low carb diet, which used to be the low carb diet here and all these low fat diets. uh, All these low fat diets there. And now it's gone the other way where there's kind of the low fat, low calorie diet and there's all these. different divisions of low carb dieting, which is kind of gratifying to see.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a mixed blessing, perhaps, uh, indicating some degree of success. Someone said a tipping point isn't 51%. It could be 18% of the population. And the next thing you know is you start seeing these other changes rippling out. I, I hope so. Um, I, I hope that what we can strive for is moving this out of the fad fringe whatever mm-hmm. category and just get more and more people eating what our grandparents would have considered food <laughs> that the not you know um it it's it's not that complicated and you don't have to buy the fancy food, you can buy the food that's available to you and and that ought to be part of our focus as well, is that people should not put additional hardship and stress on themselves thinking that they have to spend more for the high label claim items or the you know fistful of supplements uh, that, they can go to whatever food stores are available to them and buy what's affordable to them and is appropriate to their history and cultural experience uh, and personal preference. Um, I happen to be a big fan of ruminant animal products. So beef and lamb and goat, but not everybody's into beef and that's okay. And people might not want to eat, red meat but as long as you're eating animal source foods of other kinds then that would work too
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: i agree i agree and you know my pet peeve on the whole thing uh on on ways people try to adapt the low-carb diet is that they have all these uh junk food things that they like to eat you know they want to eat brownies and they want to eat candy bars and they want to eat uh you know uh, waffles uh they want to eat all these highly carb laden food items and so they try they figure out ways to make them low carb (laughs) and i mean i just think you know and i've even, even written a book about it my wife and i did um but you know just eat real food uh, right. and, and i get so annoyed with that when i see people oh this is great low carb brownie it's filled with erythritol and and you know almond flour and this and that and you know and it's you know only 500 calories but it only has three grams of carb in it <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. and i just uh you know i always try to encourage people to stay away from that and just stick with real foods
0: uh, i keep forgetting the man's name but He was somebody that showed up shortly after I became aware of blogs and things like that. And he had a phrase about smoking candy cigarettes (laughs) as as being describing this situation where we still want to eat cookies, but we want them to be okay, You know Right. And And I also think that if we look back, we see all these people suggesting that all these substances in our food were causing all these problems. And they're relatively minor substances when we've got, you know, this 80 to 90% of this signal is arguably coming from hyperinsulinemia, which is coming from having too much carbohydrate in our diet. And how can you know about this small thing when you haven't accounted for the massive signal? And I think that if we could get more people paying attention to that then there might become a lot more clarity in the marketplace for people um, the so we're we're coming toward the uh, end here and i want to respect what your your time and thank you for it again um we've you, you've, you've had these years of experience. Um, you, we can find you on YouTube with a number of um, presentations that you've given. Um, obviously, there's Protein Power. There's the Protein Power Life Plan, which mm-hmm. did that come out 10 years after Protein Power? Is that about right? No, it came out
1: actually four years after
0: Protein Power came oh. out. Wow. Okay. Okay. And I've heard rumors of uh, an update. Is that progress project still underway, or yeah,
1: it's still underway, slowly but surely?
0: Again, I don't mean to bump any bruises. Um. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's
1: just, it's uh, you know we had have, have a lot going on, and and we decided to do Protein Power 2.0 uh, a few years ago when it was the 20 year anniversary. So we thought. 2.0 is kind of an upgrade and also 20 years and now it's going on, you know, 24 and a half years, but we decided to, uh, <laughs> because it was faster to do it on our own because we have a little publishing, uh, publishing company for another business that we're involved in so we can, you know, get books published ourselves that we would just self publish that instead of going through a regular publisher and, and, um, because going through the regular publishing process is slow, slow, slow. And you kind of lose all control. You, you don't lose control over the content of the book, but what you lose control over is the timing. And, you know, you can kill yourself getting it in on a deadline and then, like happened on one of our later books, and then uh, you don't hear anything from your editor for two months. And then when you say, hey, what's going on? Have you seen this? I mean... And she says, "Oh, they pulled me off on an emergency editing job on another book, and so your book's going to be delayed. And you just you have absolutely no control when you're with a publishing company. And so we thought we've you know we've had 14 different books published by mainstream publishers, so we don't need the imprimatur of a mainstream publisher. We'll just publish it ourselves under our other little publishing house, and that way we can say what we want to say. And you know we'll get an outside editor." To, uh, to edit it because uh, books really need editors um, because you, you spend a year writing them if you're writing a standard book or nine months writing it and by the time you get to the ninth month, you're so damn tired of it. You don't want to go back and reread it again. And you can't remember what you said in the first part of it. And there invariably ends up being a lot of repetition. And, and you know, you say the same thing multiple times. And when an editor gets a hold of it, uh, he or she goes through it and, and they'll read it in a day. And then they, you know, they notice all these things and they just improve overall the clarity of the book and the flow. So we figured, well, we'll just get it written, and then we'll hire an outside editor to do all that, and then we'll publish it ourselves. But the main thing you don't have when you don't go with a major publishing company is a deadline. And when you, and when you don't have a deadline, then everything else takes precedence. And so that's kind of what's happened with this. And then we're also falling victim to the this... Uh, phenomenon where every day you get into medical literature and there's something new that comes out. and says, oh, we've got to add this. And at some point you've just got to cut it off and say, okay, all that's for the next, for protein power 3.0. <laughs> and we're just going to take this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we we were really just going to upgrade protein power. And we went back and wrote it and pretty much everything in there is still, uh, uh still something we stand by, but there's just so much new stuff out that, we thought we would uh, uh, we started thinking about how we would change this and change that and then we realized let's just scrap it and start from scratch and come mm-hmm. up with a completely new book with all the new information and and, uh, and we can reference that back if we want to talk about something that was you know true then and is true now. But Protein Power is still a good book and people can still get it, lose plenty of weight and improve their health but there's just a lot of new information out there that I find extremely fascinating. So I wanted to uh, to build a new book about some of that.
0: I a, a thought occurs to me. It's uh, one of my many pet peeves. I've got quite a menagerie of peeves, um, <laughs> um, but I have. It's it's my position now that we have hard objective evidence of the harm that comes to human beings when they don't have enough animal source food in their diet. Mm -hmm. And we can see this globally in statistics like childhood stunting globally and um, various things like that. And and yet we have people advocating for less Mm -hmm. uh, because some people actually believe that there's such a thing objectively as too much animal source food from a health perspective only are you aware of any evidence of from a nutrition and a human health perspective of harm coming to people from too much animal source food in their diet no nice
1: (laughs) yeah good that's as succinct as i can make it (laughs) no i really don't and um Uh, I think almost, uh, you know, the more the better, to tell you the truth. And, uh, I mean, all eating non-animal food gives you is really variety. And with this giant variety of stuff that we've got, people feel like it's, you know, it's boring to just eat a steak every night. And, uh, you know, they're going to get tired of it and want to have some cherry pie and this and that. You know, I'm as guilty as everybody else. I occasionally... uh, succumb to the temptation but I try not to do it very often and That's, it's
0: um, hard season coming up
1: yeah no. know and if you're on a low carb diet what I used to tell my patients is that you can eat anything you want anytime you want you just can't eat everything you want all the time Right. and so you know if you want a brownie don't go out and get you know some low carb brownie made with all kinds of crap just eat a brownie and then you know recover from it, yeah. which is what I do. I mean, I don't even like brownies. I don't know why I use that as a suggestion, but, uh, but yeah. anyway, if I see something, I mean, cherry pie, I do like. And mm-hmm. if I, uh, have strong childhood memories of cherry pie,
0: as long it, as the crust is made with lard. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. And all <laughs> of our crusts are made with lard if we right. ever make a pie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I agree that, um, the more animal foods you can get, the better you are. And I think part of the problem, I mean, I've got this, um, this theory about um, this current wave of obesity uh, that, that kind of involves the reduction of saturated fat. And I think that this reduction in saturated fat has fueled it along with the increase in, in seed oils. And you know, for a long time, obesity held pretty much steady in the country for decades and decades and decades, and uh, the percentage that were obese were probably extremely carb-sensitive because they responded really well to a low-carb diet. And then you know, you come into the 19, late 1970s and early 1980s, and everything changed. You started—I mean, if you if you look at the the graph of what's happened since then, you notice that people are eating a little bit more of everything. They're eating a little bit more fat. They're eating a tiny bit more protein and they're eating a lot more carbohydrate. And you have to ask yourself why, I mean, did in 1980, did carbohydrates start tasting better? I mean, you can't just say people are eating more. you better say what prompted it. I mean, is it food availability? Is it, you know, McDonald's in every corner offering all this crap that might have something to do with it? Who knows? But for some reason, people started eating more and, um, and, and if you look at the uh, you know, the change in carb intake in terms of what it's made of, a little bit more is high fructose corn syrup re- than just regular sugar, but high fructose corn syrup really isn't that much difference in makeup than regular sugar. Uh, if you look at protein, there's not much difference there. If you look at fat, it's gone up a little bit, but there's a big difference because saturated fat's fallen off thanks to all this scare about heart disease and and vegetable oils have gone way up and that's the one giant change between now and and back then and so i started wondering if if saturated fats weren't actually protective and polyunsaturated fats damaging and so i started looking around for anything mechanistically that would seem to confirm that and sure enough i found a guy you know peter hyperlipid Dobrzymilski, who's come up with a theory on that that I find, you know, really compelling, and I've written about it and lectured about it, and uh, you know, it, it, and working on refining it a little bit, but um, so, uh, I mean, I think, I think the first wave was probably caused by a carb sensitivity, and the second wave caused by that, and. Um, But even the second wave can be treated with a low-carb diet because generally when you go on a low-carb diet, you increase your intake of saturated fat and decrease your intake of of vegetable oils because vegetable oils are commonly found in all kinds of processed foods. And usually they're in there along with carbs. And so if you cut back on processed foods because you're trying to cut back on carbs, you'll really drop your vegetable oil intake as well. And so I think that a low-carb diet treats both the first wave and the second wave But I think people can really help themselves out if they up their saturated fat intake while at the same time really cutting their seed oil intake, their vegetable oil intake to a minimum.
0: And I I think if we look at the uh, consumption patterns, we've seen a decline in beef consumption and a dramatic Mm -hmm. increase in poultry and pork and those two being non-ruminant animals mm-hmm. their content of those very same polyunsaturated fatty acids is going to be greater than any right. ruminant animal right. so um that just feeds more you know if we could deconstruct everything and total up the amount of polyunsaturated fat we'd see a tremendous increase not just from the industrial oils that are hmm. used oh um, yeah but perhaps Perhaps that's for our next visit, and I look forward to that. So people can find you on Twitter. I know that for certain, and we'll put put that in. Your blog is in a transition but can still be found, yes? Oh, yeah, it can
1: still be found. I'm in the process right now of converting it over to a different hosting service and a different look uh, because I kind of got flim-flammed by a webinar I watched. Anyway long story okay. but but yeah it can be proteinpower.com and okay. uh and then you can get the blog on there in the menu and find that and twitter and uh that's about it i'm not really a big facebook kind of guy
0: and uh certainly amazon is one place to start mm-hmm. looking i think um and certainly it's been fun when i have the habit of hitting bookstores um whenever i visit a, a town for a location for a a presentation I always go and look and see which books are available that I want to give out as part of the audience and if I Mm -hmm. ever find um, protein power or protein power life plans those are ones that I I buy used copies of or new copies if they're available in a bookstore. But mm. that was a few months ago that we were able to actually do that sort of thing like travel. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah. Uh, different, different time. Mike, thank you so much for all you've been doing. Thank you for um, the effect it had on my life. And, and I appreciate that. And thank you for the time. Oh, my today. pleasure.
1: Glad to be, It's been fun.